Uh, good morning, everybody. Please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to give you a disclaimer before we start. This is not a topical message on heaven. Uh, after a year, you hopefully know me well enough to know I'm a, uh, a, kind of a verse-by-verse guy, pretty much. And so this is a message on heaven as this passage touches on it. At least that's my hope and prayer. That's what I hope comes through. Uh, for the last couple of years, whenever I would preach and I would walk by the office of a, a buddy of mine, another pastor, he would always say to me, give him heaven. So I'm hoping that's what we get today. So please stand with me. Hebrews 9. We're going to read verses 23 to 28. You know, last week we ended with verse 22 that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And verse 23 picks up with that thought. There is, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. Lord God, thank you for your word. We just praise you. We thank you that you have spoken to us. We pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word this day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Uh, It's been said that people, some people, are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. You've heard that before. I haven't met anyone that fits that description. But I've known many that were so earthly-minded that they were no heavenly good. I am that way often. C.S. Lewis said this, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. One thing the subject of heaven does is direct our attention to a defining, pivotal moment in history. Now, ancient Greeks did not believe that there was a turning point. They believed history was circular. They didn't believe the human soul was immortal and that after death, the person just ceased to exist. And what lasted forever in their thinking was that time marched on in a circular process. There's been a resurgence of this kind of thinking in recent years with the whole circle of life mentality. But Augustine of Hippo faced this challenge head on. He was responding to a charge that Christianity had caused the fall of Rome and he wrote the book, City of God. And in that book, he clearly laid out a biblical view of history, one that is linear, and he said that history has a start, that it has a central turning point, and that it has a definite end. He pointed to one event in human history, 
one event that is unrepeatable by nature. Couldn't happen again. And that defined mankind's existence. It is this, the death of Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The turning point of history. That's what Hebrews 9 points to. And he, in our passage for today, Hebrews 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 23 to 28, we see both the turning point of history as well as its ending point. And it all points to heaven. It all points to heaven. We see the basis of a heavenly, eternally focused life. A worldview that, that views heaven as the goal. We, see, we will see in this passage why being heavenly minded makes us the most earthly good. Most effective in this life and prepared for the one to come. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing is that the turning point of history is when Jesus went into heaven for us. When Jesus went into heaven for us. We see that in verses uh, specifically in verse 23, it said, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy, but into heaven itself. He went into heaven itself to appear on our behalf. Christ brought a sacrifice to God on our behalf. Now, this ha- pointed to the cross. It happened at the cross while Jesus was on earth. We know that. But the full act included his ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection. We can't leave the ascension out of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It points, when we say, what does it mean that Jesus went into heaven for us? It points to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Subsequent appearance in heaven, which marked the turning point of history. Now we must remember that that ascension is linked to the cross. It's all a part of his one integrated work of redemption in his first coming when he appeared. This appearance before God was for us. It marks a distinct act separate from what the the earthly high priest did. See, the earthly high priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself, you'll remember. But Jesus died for us, giving himself as the sacrifice, representing us as a substitute. And in that act, Jesus paved the way for us to enter the presence of God. He opened the door for us to enter the presence of God. He appeared, it says Christ appeared. He didn't appear to the world. He didn't appear for his own sake, but before literally the face of God. For a specific purpose. What he achieves by it is true access to the presence of God. I was um, surprised recently. I called the leader of a pretty large Christian organization and he answered his own phone. I was surprised. Often you can't get to the main person in an organization unless you go through two or three or even four levels. Or sometimes they're completely out of reach. They're inaccessible to the general public. And there's good reason for that, humanly speaking. For example, I cannot just go to the White House and knock on the door and say, I'd like to see President Bush, please. There's good reason to limit who gets in. But think of this. In Jesus' finished act, in that turning point of history, we now have access all the time into the presence of Almighty God. See, He is not limited 
we won't overload the circuits. There's not a chance that if three of us call at one time, we would overload the circuits. Or even if every person in the world would call upon him at the same time. Because he is infinite. He is bigger and greater than we can imagine. So we have permission to approach God directly. Now verse 23 has somewhat of a puzzling statement. It said that the things in heaven, the heavenly things, need to be cleansed. And if you really think about it, you have to ask yourself the question, why would heaven need to be cleansed? There are various views on this. One view is that since heaven was the scene of Satan's rebellion, it needed to be cleansed from the defiling aspects of sin. Colossians 1.20 talks about how Christ's death reconciled all things to God, even the things that are in heaven. Now, another view is that it points to Christ taking care of the cosmic problem of sin, a symbolic cleansing, then, of heaven in general. But the words in verse 23 do not point to a general, but a specific object of cleansing. It points, what I think the writer is getting at, is that true cleansing is a matter of the heart and the soul and the mind. It takes place not by human effort, but by God's act in Christ. And so an explanation that I like is that the heavenly things are human souls, which are eternal and need cleansing to be in the presence of God. The things that are heavenly needed to be cleansed by better sacrifices, the blood of Christ. It would signify then the inward cleansing of believers through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. F.F. Bruce said this, It is believers that need inward cleansing, not only that their approach to God may be free from defilement, but that they may be a fit habitation for Him. A dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, since heaven is the place that God restores sinners unto Himself, it needed cleansing not because of sin in heaven, but because sinful people would be going to heaven. They'd be cleansed by their, from their sins. God more than took care of that need, that need for cleansing, to be reconciled. Because what Christ's offering does is it secures heaven for us. It guarantees our entrance into heaven. Guarantees for those who are born again by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 25. It says, nor that Jesus, he would offer himself often. He didn't have to keep on offering himself. There are certain traditions that say they hold to the scriptures that say that Christ is continually being sacrificed. Tonight, when we celebrate communion, we will not be sacrificing Jesus again. We will be remembering his one sacrifice for all time after which he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But Christ's offering secures heaven for us. Jesus, verse 25 tells us, he, off, he came once to put away sin by offering himself. He went into heaven to cleanse the conscience of sinners and to intercede for his chosen ones. That's the deciding moment of history. Verse 26 says, that at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to do this. What's the consummation of the ages? The end of the ages is when Christ came to die, when Christ came to earth to die. It is the decisive eschatological event of all time. 
His was a public appearance on earth. And he opened the way of access into the sanctuary where God is truly present and therefore guarantees our eternal home. Uh, The scriptures tell us that God has set eternity in our hearts. A desire for the eternal. You know, why do we always want things a little better here on earth? Why do we hope for the comfortable? You could say, well, it's because we're so selfish, but could it be that it's because we were made for a place that is not where we live right now? Could it be that it was because we have been made for an eternal home that we seek? See, Christ has secured that. The cleansing blood of Jesus provides us with a relationship with God in this life and secures a place in heaven for us. Now to appear for us, it says, represent us as an advocate. Right now, he is there for us. We ask our friends, uh, will you be there for me? Are you, are you there for me? There's a little uh, questionnaire circling around a lot of our youth nowadays, and it, one of the questions is, have I been there for you? You know, and people let us down. But Jesus is there for us in the very fullest meaning of the term right this moment. And his death and his resurrection and his ascension... His appearance in heaven for us is the turning point in history. But it's not the end. The ending point of history is when Christ will return to take us to heaven. Verses 28, uh, excuse me, 27 and 28 uh, talk about that. It says in verse 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed, it is ordained that we are um, to die once. You get one chance. You live, you die. Then the judgment. After this comes the judgment. It's appointed that way for people. You die once. Now, there were a few exceptions. Lazarus most likely died twice. And a few others. And some were taken. But we die once. Ecclesiastes 8.8. 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 8 says, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death. In Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5 says this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Life's but a vapor, James says, and it, van- it appears for a moment and vanishes like steam. It's pointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. It's going to happen. Now you can take a bunch of vitamins and treatments and do all sorts of things to extend your life, but you and I will not extend our lives one moment beyond when God has ordained for us to leave. We are invincible until it's our time to go. That, I, I'm a worrier. I think some of you know that already. I'm, I'm a worrier. I think about all the what ifs. This one is in God's hands. And so is everything else. People, it, it makes sense to prepare what comes after if we're going to die, Right? People want to know what happens when they die. What happens? Are they disintegrated into nothing? Poof. 
That was the basic view of the Greeks, of the ancient Greeks in Jesus' time. And for example, people who now hold to the Eastern view of reincarnation don't have any better hope. Uh, here's, the, here's their worldview. Uh, your soul returns to earth for an almost endless toil in one life after another. Finally ending in total oblivion. That makes a lot of sense. Now the biblical answer could not be more opposite. It's completely different. We die, then comes judgment. We don't like that word, judgment, do we? Now comes judgment after we die. Judgment follows death. There are no multiplied lives... And believers will be judged and appear at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The unsaved, unbelievers, will be judged. The great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. You can read of it. In fact, let's go there. Uh, Revelation 20 and verse 11 Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Look at verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's going to happen. There are no second chances. You know, here on earth we give the first and the second and the third strikes and more. We even say, and and I agree with, it's better to err on the side of grace than on judgment when it comes to human affairs. You might get it taken advantage of, but grace is a good thing to extend. Sometimes you extend it too much. You're not in the grace mode anymore. It becomes something far different. But, but there are no second chances. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Period. John three eighteen. Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. It's simple. It's very simple. Christ has appeared a first time to bear the sins of many. Isaiah 53 speaks of that. Hundreds of years before it ever happened. In Isaiah 53 in verse 10, we read this, The Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He would see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He came once to bear the sins of many. He will also, as verse 28 explains for us, appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. 
It refers to the second coming of Christ, his parousia in Greek, his return. This passage illustrates well the biblical teaching of salvation and Christ's finished work. All three tenses of Christ's saving work and salvation are covered in this passage. His first coming to save us from the penalty of sin, we see in verse 26, he has now been manifested at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He secures in that our justification, uh, that he makes us right with himself, he makes us right with God, and that Jesus appeared in heaven for us, paying our penalty and obtaining freedom from sin, so he, in, in justification, frees us from the penalty of sin. Now, the second part of that work is his present intercessory ministry in heaven to save us from the power of sin, and that's seen in verse 24. He went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, interceding for us. It points to the fact that he's working out our sanctification. God at work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. That Jesus appears in heaven for us, interceding for us, and he in that, in that continual act is freeing us from the power of sin on a daily basis as we look to him. And then the third aspect is a second coming to earth. A second coming to earth to deliver us from the presence of sin. Verse 28. He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. It points to his uh, glorifying us, our glorification. When Christ returns or we go to be with him, Jesus will appear at one point Take us to heaven if we are still here. He will free us at that point from the presence of sin. Uh, Without reference to sin, this time he will not come atoning for sin. That's been done. But he will be bringing his reward with him for those he has saved. He will return for those who are eagerly awaiting him. He, He said he has gone to prepare a place for us. People will either live with an expectation of reward or dread of judgment. It's two very different stances. One is with arms outstretched, eagerly awaiting his return. The other is with arms crossed in defiance or covering our faces, uh, cowering in fear. Remember when, when I was in high school, my grandfather died. I was very close to him, and I remember crying myself to sleep many a night, hoping wishing, yearning that he would come back. I had, did not have a biblical worldview at that point. I was just a kid who missed his grandpa. But I wanted him to come back so bad. I remember being on a missions trip in, um, in 1997. Angela and I were in Estonia. I remember crying myself to sleep one night missing my kids so much. I remember being in India in 1999. I, I'm, I'm a baby. I was the same way. I was missing Angela and the kids. Couldn't, couldn't wait to see them again. And me being the warrior I am, I had to pray the whole flight home that I'd make it home safely. Two very different stances. Arms outstretched, hoping, yearning, eagerly awaiting the return or afraid at what will happen. See, Jesus will return for those who eagerly await him. He will bring a complete deliverance from this fallen, sinful world with its effects 
to those who are anticipating his return. He will take us home to heaven. Now, there are some interesting ideas floating around about heaven. Largely shaped by pop culture and movies like It's a Wonderful Life. Great movie. Excuse me. Some people envision playing harps all day and floating around on the clouds. And people becoming angels once they're there. Others think of boredom and not knowing what they'll do with themselves for eternity. Such fixations stunt our biblical thinking about heaven, which the New Testament, by New Testament accounts, is so much more. But more of what? More of God's good gifts, more of God himself. And I must confess, I have a pretty stunted view of heaven. Uh, Two books are helping me right now. God's using uh, Randy Alcorn's book, Living in Light of Eternity, and his book, Heaven. And God is working on it in my life. But I've got a stunted view. You probably all feel like we have somewhat of a stunted view of it. I mean, we haven't been there yet. (laughs) How do we know? Well, the Bible tells us. But Jesus is going to return to take us to heaven. Now, but some of us will die before we get there. Excuse me, before he comes back. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Woo! Let's retract that last statement. There's a hole in my mouth, and sometimes things come out that aren't right. Uh, Some of us will die before Jesus returns. So where do we go? We go to the present heaven. Some have called it an intermediate heaven, but we go to the present heaven. But there is a new heaven and new earth coming, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Go there for a minute with me. Revelation 21, verse 1. I know I haven't been waiting for you I'm waiting for you now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is a first heaven that you go to before, if you die before Jesus returns. But then there is uh, uh, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adored for her husband. I heard a loud voice From the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. No longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And it goes on to give a beautiful picture. See, in heaven, in heaven, we will fully know the presence of God. The tabernacle of God is among men. Heaven is the ultimate place of God's presence. Fully known and experienced. We know God's presence now. As Brother Lawrence wrote in his little book, The Practice of the Presence of God, one of my favorites. We ought to be practicing the presence of God at all times. He is with us always. But heaven is the place of God's presence fully known and experienced. Then we shall fully known even as we have. We shall know fully even as we have been fully known. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus entered heaven itself. Heaven is the place into which we shall follow our great high priest. Jesus, drawing near to God, entering into his presence more fully than we have ever known. In heaven, God is the focus. God's the focus. Earth is the place that our focus so often goes inward and rests on ourselves. Me, me, me. Happy am I, woe is me, and all the things about me. 
But heaven is a place where the focus of our attention reaches outward and rests on God himself. Won't that be beautiful? Freed from the focus on me. We will say, look at him, look to him. I asked several people this week, what do you imagine when you think of heaven? I got some interesting answers. Some I, could, I, I deleted. Didn't know if it was appropriate. But a couple of things I heard was this. One person said, prettiness, clouds, happiness, cool, awesome stuff. Another said, I don't know. Why? Why do you ask? Uh, still another said, uh, I don't know. Light? Never sinning? New body? Heart still alive, but body is dead? God provides a home for you to stay while you're there. No crying, no whining, or doing any bad things. That was from a six-year-old. Someone said, I think of God. Isn't it interesting that sometimes when we think of heaven, we don't think of God? (laughs) We think of the things that we think of heaven that we don't understand. When we think of heaven, first thought should be God. In heaven, we will see clearly what we don't see clearly now. We will see clearly what we dimly see now. See, people of faith long for heaven. Just turn over to Hebrews 11. We'll be there in a couple months. What? All these, uh, chapter 11, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a, a distance... And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he has prepared a city for them. People of faith long for heaven. But a clear view of that for which we are to long eludes us while we're here on earth. We see through a glass dimly, but then we shall see face to face. All our greatest desires and pleasures in purity and devotion to Christ will be realized beyond our wildest hopes and dreams in heaven. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, No mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. 2 Corinthians 2.9 Everything will be realized in Christ because he is the one without limits. All good things will be there. If this sounds boring, we don't know him as we should. If this sounds just kind of not so exciting, we we don't know him as we should. See, the Word of God tells us that heaven is a real place. It's going to be filled with all good things that God provides, things beyond our imagination. It's a place prepared by God, especially for those whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who heaven is for. There is nothing bad there. There is no sin, no crying, no pain, no selfishness. See, heaven is both a present place and a future destination. A present place and a future destination. Right now, it's our spiritual dwelling place. Colossians 3 tells us we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But someday it will be our future destination. 
whether we go to be with him before he returns, dwelling in the present heaven, or Jesus returns before that and we enter the new heavens and new earth. See, history has a turning point. History has a turning point that answers our every need. It's the first coming of Jesus with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven as our Savior. But history also has a culminating point. A culminating point. It's the return of Christ, not in weakness, but in strength. In glory. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are awaiting him. Who he has already saved from sin. See, Jesus is the way to heaven. Talked a lot about the ancient Greeks today, but they also had emperors they worshipped as gods. And some of those emperors would, would, cry, would have, uh, cry out before them, I am the way, follow me. But Jesus is the way. He is the true way. He is the way to heaven. The only way to heaven. So why does being so, why does being heavenly minded make us the most earthly good? Why does it make us most effective in this life and prepared for the one to come? It's because our sights set on heaven, the focus is where it should be. It's on Jesus. I got two letters this week. Uh, Proverbs 25, 25 says, Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. I got two letters from our OBers, one from Madison and one from Bethany, and, and uh, I love their focus. They're so focused right now on sharing Jesus, on being focused on relying upon the Lord and depending upon the Lord. It's interesting Madison said that personally I've been reading out of the Psalms and I think if we prayed as fervently and boldly as David did, it'd be amazing. Not that everybody prays badly now, I just think it would be amazing if we prayed as, as badly as we could for everything. As boldly as we could for everything. As our senior leader Tim says, you should run as hard as, and as fast as you can with God's word every day. In the beginning of Operation Barnabas, I knew I was going to be pushed and challenged. However, I'm being encouraged every day. Encouraged every day. They're, they're, they're preaching the word. Uh, Bethany talks about a, uh, a little trip they took. Uh, it's so exciting to go out into the community and make impacts in people's lives by helping them. The other day we went to a police station and washed police cars. We had a chance to talk to a few people that weren't saved, including the head of the police department. It's just amazing how when you're constantly looking for opportunities to share Christ, they show up in the randomest places. Isn't that true? See, when we're heavenly minded, we're going to see more opportunities. Talked last week, uh, I said, hey, when, you, when you're sharing Christ, don't forget Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But also don't forget Hebrews 9.27 and 28. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And Jesus will return a second time without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. If you don't know Jesus... If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know you're going to heaven, I invite you this day, this very moment, come to Christ. Believe in his finished work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, and his second coming. And, and if you're really earthly-minded today, if you're like me and you're, you find it happen every day, trust Jesus to set your sights upon him. 
The second to last verse in the Bible ends with an invitation. Revelation 22, 20, Jesus says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. And the next words say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Take us to be where you are. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that Jesus is coming quickly. Maybe not as quickly as some through the ages and years have thought. Lord, we do yearn for your return. And we thank you, Lord, that even every day you're giving us just a little bit clearer picture of what it means to set our sights on you and to be heavenly minded. Lord, we want to fulfill the purpose you have for us here on earth during this time. Lord, I'm convinced that to do that, we've got to trust you and look to you, look to you alone. And we commit ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please stand with me. We're going to be out on time today. We say praise God for that. Let me ask again, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? If you don't, I'm going to be right up here at the end. I want you to come talking to me. Talk to me, please. I want to encourage you to, to ask Jesus into your life. Turn to him and be saved. And then all of us, God wants us to be heavenly minded. Don't believe the lie that says if you're so heavenly minded, you won't be of any earthly good. It's the other way around. In your bulletins, there's bookmarks. I encourage you to read the word, pray. Trust God. Um, tonight, communion. Love to see you there. No need to wash your feet before you come. We'll be doing that here. And, um, well, guys, don't wash your feet before you come. Um, but it's a, a solemn time. Seriously, it's a solemn time uh, with the family of God. I'd love to have you partake with us around the tables, around the basins, and to share one, with one another. Um, I want to say one other thing. For the next three weeks, I will be out of town. I will miss you. I will pray for you. Uh, we've got three stellar preachers filling in while I'm gone um, that will uh, point us to Jesus. And uh, we're going to be in Tennessee with my, folk, my, my in-laws, my parents, Angela's parents. And also I'll be going to the home office in Indiana. Pastor Ed and I will be traveling there uh, for uh, a pastor's conference for the, the last week I'll be gone. Anyway, uh, God bless you all. Have a great day.